Hello, everyone, and welcome to the True Blue Crime Podcast. My name is Dan, and as always, I will be your host for this episode. Now, this is the Male Black Widow Part 2. If you have not listened to Part 1, I highly suggest doing so, as this episode is going to reference a lot of stuff from Part 1, and it's not going to make a lot of sense if you listen to this one first. So find Episode 26, which is the Male Black Widow Part 1. Listen to that first, and then listen to this one. If you would like to get updates about what the podcast is up to, please like and follow the True Blue Crime Productions Facebook page. More information can be found on the show's website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. And if you'd like to email the host directly, my email is truebluecrimeproductions at gmail.com. If you can, please support the show via Patreon. Any donation level helps, and it'll help ensure I can keep making free episodes of the podcast and expand the podcast in the future. And I can stop reading this script and start giving some shout outs if people do donate to patreon i will uh, thank you over the air uh, during the podcast so please find that patreon site at true blue crime productions and donate if you can for no cost whatsoever please rate and review the show on whatever platform you're listening to thanks so much without any further ado let's dive into this episode of true blue crime the year is 1995 and to put people into the time period here are some of the current events The San Francisco 49ers win their last Super Bowl. The Oklahoma City bombing kills 168 people. And in the trial of the century, O.J. Simpson is found not guilty on two counts of homicide. And on May 6, 1995, a 37-year-old Harold Henthorne was driving his then-wife Lynn down a remote road in Sedalia, Colorado, when he claimed he suddenly felt one of the tires on the Jeep he was driving going, quote, spongy, end quote. He pulled over onto the side of the road and jacked the Jeep up to change the tire. It would be during this tire change that Lynn would sustain injuries that ultimately ended her life. An investigation done immediately after the incident was wrought with mistakes, as we will point out later. Lynn's cause of death was determined to be an accident, and Harold collected a large insurance payout, roughly $600,000 or $1.25 million in today's money. But after Tony's death, the Investigators are going to take a second look at Lynn's death and start to see a lot of things that really don't make sense, as well as a lot of things, sorry, a lot of similarities between the two crimes. But we'll break down the important points in the investigation first. First, the spongy tire itself. When investigators measured the tire pressure in the tire that was being changed when the accident happened, the pressure was low at 15 psi, but definitely not flat and all the tires showed low pressures in the areas of 27 to 30 psi. Now, all tires were supposed to be at 44 psi, but the point investigators made is that it would have been difficult to tell that one tire was more flat than others, as they were all low on air, and the spare tire that Harold wanted to use to replace the flat one was only at 19 psi, or 4 psi higher than the one he was changing. Now, spare tires do lose air, and it's not direct evidence of wrongdoing, but it's more that the flat tire itself seemed fishy to investigators, and the work of changing a tire on the side of a remote road to something not much better seems like an inconvenience most would not attempt. To me, one of the most damning parts of this incident was the fact that a local mechanic drove by the couple at 9.30pm and offered to help them change the tire. This mechanic saw that Harold only had a small handheld flashlight and the mechanic offered to shine his headlights on Henthorne's vehicle so they could see better. So this is again 9.30 at night, the side of a remote 
uh, mountain style road so there's not going to be a lot of light even if it's a clear night with a full moon it's still going to be really difficult to change a tire so this mechanic who knows obviously a lot about vehicles is willing to turn his vehicle in a way that his headlights are illuminating the point where the, t the tire change is going on so Harold doesn't have to try to hold a small handheld flashlight and change a tire all by himself and Harold just waves him on. Now Harold would turn down all of his offers for help and sent him on his way but would later tell investigators he did not have much experience changing tires. This could be chalked up to foolish masculine bravado but Given the circumstances, it seems ex excessively stupid to turn down help in this type of situation. And there are going to be a lot of parts of this investigation that you can play devil's advocate and argue the other side of it. You can say, yeah, all the tires were a little flat, but that one was definitely low at 15 PSI. So he, maybe he didn't know that the the spare was only four psi higher and he's on mountain roads so he's worried and now you know he's basically men are just terrible at accepting help or asking for directions so maybe he's trying to be this macho guy for his wife and no i can sh show her i can change a tire i don't need some other guy's help so again you can play devil's advocate and argue a lot of stuff but as we get deeper here you're going to see that this is just a Decision after decision after decision is made by Harold to set up this incident. Sometime after the mechanic left, Harold asked Lynn to go under the Jeep to retrieve a lug nut that had rolled off during the tire change. The shoulder that they're on is gravel, and Harold would claim this lug nut somehow rolled on gravel. If you never changed a tire before, the lug nut is this heavy piece of metal that screws over a hubcap or the, the the wheels itself that keep the the wheel in place and it is because it's put under some immense pressure granted there's five or six of them but because they're under such immense pressure to keep those tires on the vehicle through turns and all that kind of stuff there these are significant pieces of metal they're not you know just flimsy little things that so they've got some real weight to them and so if you were to drop this on gravel my expectation was that it would be it would sink in the gravel not that it would roll and that's what investigators believed as well so unless this is not really gravel but it's more like firm dirt on the side of the road and then the dirt's at like a slope then i could maybe see how one dropped might roll a little bit but still with the weight of this metal these are not things that that roll very well and so for not only for it just to roll you know six inches this thing was supposedly rolled far enough underneath the car that Lynn would have to wiggle her you know, half of her body underneath the car to reach it including her arms so we're talking about a claim that this thing rolled dang near underneath the middle of, of this Jeep it's gonna be a half hour later at 10 p.m. that Harold flagged down a car that was driving by and he said the Jeep had fallen on his wife and he needed help. These passerbys drove to a nearby home to try to find a phone to call. Again, it's 1995. Yes, cell phones exist, but most people did not have them. Or even if they did, this is an area that would likely have no service. The passerbys failed to find a phone, so they return and decide to offer help. More people had stopped now, and two men lifted the Jeep off Lynn and started doing CPR on her, which Harold objected to them doing. 
So this is going to be very familiar to the lack of CPR he did on Tony after her fall. Her condition while under the car was unknown. There's no indication whether she had a pulse or was breathing, but during the CPR they noticed that Lynn had a pulse and was breathing on her own. And I know I mentioned in the last episode that CPR doesn't usually revive people. What's interesting here is the reason I mentioned we don't know what her status is. A lot of the times when people find somebody who's unconscious and is not able to respond, they immediately assume that that person does not have a pulse and is not breathing. And if they've never been trained on how to check for a pulse or check for breathing, a lot of the times that assumption is that they don't. So while they say that doing CPR brought her quote unquote back and she started breathing again, if the incident that preceded the heart stopping, if in fact her heart was stopped, but if the incident that was preceding her heart stopping was not related to a heart attack or damage to the heart itself, it is possible that just by getting oxygenated blood flowing again that you might kind of jumpstart somebody's system. But again, it's more common that the person is just unconscious and might have a weak pulse or shallow breathing and the CPR is basically getting them back to more of towards their norm and so you're going to see more of a response out of the body afterwards but that aside another passerby was able to drive further away and found a phone and paramedics arrived soon after Lynn was airlifted to a nearby hospital but died from internal injuries suffered by the jeep falling hunter now in one article I saw this was six days and another article it made it seem like she died in surgery after arriving at the hospital so I don't know which one is correct here I do know that no matter the time frame her death was related to this jeep falling on top of her and when I say paramedics arrived soon after there was no timeline that I found as to how long it took however being that it's a remote road and kind of the middle of nowhere my guess is that her care from emergency services was delayed quite a bit and that's another theme that we're going to see in in all of Harold's attacks. When investigators interviewed some of the Good Samaritans that stopped to help, they learned that Harold exhibited some disturbing behaviors. In addition to Harold yelling at the rescuers for pulling Lynn out from under the car and trying to save her, one of them noted that Harold refused to give up his jacket to put on his wife, who at this point was breathing but was unconscious and likely in shock. The, the refusal to do something as simple as try to keep her, his wife warm on the cold ground stuck with the Good Samaritan for the rest of her life. And this Good Samaritan actually gave up her coat for uh, Lynn, and even to the point that I think the coat went with, this, with Lynn to the hospital, and the Good Samaritan mentioned later on that she never got her coat back. But it wasn't the fact that she never got her coat back that, that stuck with her the rest of the life. It, it was the fact that Harold refused to give up his own jacket for his critically injured wife. And that same Good Samaritan would call the Sheriff's Department a couple days later to ask if they had arrested Harold for what he did to his wife under that Jeep. The witness was so convinced Harold had killed her and she told them all of his odd behaviors and how she felt the whole situation was staged. The vehicle was inspected closely and one investigator found a suspicious shoe print on the Jeep as if someone had kicked it hard. The shoe was said to match a pattern of shoe known to be worn by Harold, but investigators only photographed the print, not the shoes he was wearing that night. Investigators also found that Harold had switched out the standard jack that came with the Jeep for a much less stable one. He claimed he had two jacks, but the standard jack was 
locked up and not working, and he had tried to lubricate it, but it wouldn't budge. However, no lubrication was found in the vehicle when investigators looked. Harold told the investigators the Jeep must have slipped off its jack when he was throwing the spare tire in the back. Investigators found the same year and model of Jeep, and using the same type of jack, they conducted experiment after experiment and tried to replicate what happened. They did just about all they could to the Jeep, and the jack held. Car jacks are designed to stay solid, and because they have the weight of the entire vehicle on them, they are quite immovable even on rough terrain. Then they noticed, Then investigators noticed the photograph with the shoe print, which gave them something new to try. They quickly realized the only way they could simulate what happened to Lynn was by kicking the Jeep in the exact spot the shoe print was seen in the photos. When that much force was applied to that spot, the non-standard jack would give and the Jeep would collapse to the ground. And in regards to this jack, when you get a new vehicle, it comes with a jack and a tool kit and everything like that for if you have this exact issue, a tire that goes bad on the side of the road, and you need to jack up the vehicle on that axle to take the weight off the tire so you can change it. And they showed this jack to a mechanic, the investigators did, the one that he ended up using, and apparently it was pretty thin and flimsy and not designed to to raise a vehicle like a Jeep off the ground, it would work, and even when they simulated it, it would work and it would had held when they threw the tire in the back of the Jeep and all this kind of stuff, but the mechanic looked, took one look at it and said he would never try to change a tire on that jack, it would just be too dangerous, and the mechanic had never heard of a jack a standard jack coming with a vehicle locking up or failing to operate I and mean, it was a pretty simple mechanism on this jack however the investigators never even tested the jack to see if it was quote-unquote locked up like Harold said it was so all of this was obviously evidence that the situation itself was very 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 suspicious but now they're gonna take a closer look at Harold's statements that night and his finances around that time. So Harold would tell investigators many different stories that night to include they were going to dinner when they had the flat tire or they had just left after eating dinner somewhere. Harold would also tell investigators that he was the one who pulled his wife out from under the car, a statement that was contradicted by several independent witnesses. So we're seeing in his statements we're seeing the same thing that is going to happen in Tony's incident and actually a couple of Tony's incidents um, where he can't keep his story straight. He's, he's trying to tell a story that will be more believable and either, again, as we talked about in part one, he's messing up parts of his story and realizing afterwards that they don't make sense so he changes it to a story that makes more sense or he's adapting the story to whoever he's telling it to so that they understand it or in a way that he believes that they will believe it type of a thing but it's clear that no matter what they're doing whether they're going to dinner or eating dinner that's something that you should not mess up in a statement it's dinner you either coming from dinner or you're going to dinner it's not one of those gray areas so the fact he can't even keep that straight and then his claim of pulling his wife out from under the car makes him look like a superhero or makes him look like this, you know, rescuer of his wife and somebody that cared about his wife. When in fact, you've got several witnesses that will claim that they're the ones that pulled Lynn out and they have no reason to lie. 
and several witnesses that claim that Harold was yelling at them for pulling Lynn out. So, again, he manipula manipulates any situation with statements to try to make him look better, even when these statements clearly are proven to be lies. Investigators also found that while Harold had claimed he only had a small insurance policy on Lynn, no one actually looked no one looked into the actual payouts, and due to a clause he had enacted just weeks before her death, the payout went from roughly 30000 that he claimed he expected to get to closer to 645000 the equivalent of $1.25 million payout in today's money. Later on, he would make the same claim about Tony when asked about life insurance. After her fall from the park, he told investigators that he only had a $1 million policy that was in Haley's name. She was the beneficiary and Harold would only see roughly $50,000 when in fact the only policy in Haley's name had been taken over by Harold and this was a $200,000 policy that had been purchased for Tony's parent or from purchased by Tony's parents for Haley. So he had 4.5 million and then took another 200 million from Haley and applied that made him the sole beneficiary so for Tony's death he stood to gain 4.7 million but he told investigators Haley was getting a million and he would only see 50,000 and I just even though I'm sorry I'm jumping through the timeline here it's one in my research before in part one I said it was 4.5 million while researching this part I found that extra 200,000 so it was 4.7 million and it, it's an important tie-in to what he did in 1995, undersold the amount of money that he was going to get when asked by investigators because, again, clearly they're going to look closer at a spouse that's getting you know, the equivalent of $1.25 million to a spouse that's getting you know, fifty or $60,000 in 1995. And the same thing again in 2012 when he kills Tony, he's he's trying to sell it as if his daughter gets all of this money he's you know seeing a small payment but that's going to cover funeral expenses and and other things like that but he's not seeing a large payout when in fact he knows he's going to get 4.7 million if uh if he can get away with it the investigation in 1995 was conducted by a a department without a lot of experience investigating homicides and the investigating detective had only recent take, recently taken over the position and had very limited training and experience. The department allowed Lynn to be immediately cremated at the strong and many requests of Harold and when the deputy coroner felt this was suspicious he wanted to look at the case more he was told to stand down. So this is the end of kind of the story but I don't mean to jump all over the department from 1995 and, and they've taken a lot of flack for this investigation. It is difficult. I mean, we again are looking back on this with hindsight and knowing that he killed Tony and that's going to make us change a lot of our beliefs about what happened in 1995 and those beliefs wouldn't exist obviously in 1995 because Tony hasn't died yet. So investigators are going to look at it and there were mistakes that were made in terms of not taking photographs of his shoes to match that shoe print, uh, not check out the jack to further that story, especially after they've searched the vehicle and found out there wasn't the lubrication he claimed he tried to use on the jack. So there's a lot of holes in his story and a lot of mismatched statements that probably should, not 
probably. They should have been investigated more back in 1995. But proving murder from an accidental death, as we found out just in the 2012 case, and this is with it happened in a national park, so the FBI is going to be involved. So with the help of, of federal agencies that investigate major crimes like this all the time, it was a difficult case for them to investigate and bring charges. And they had to get the 1995 investigation into their case just in order to have charges. So I'm not faulting the 1995 investigation completely. I wish it had been done more thoroughly and and better and maybe they would have found something back in 95 that could have brought charges against Harold or at the very least given the life insurance policy uh, holder something to not make payment on so that he wouldn't have profited and decided he needed to do it again again I'm just I'm just saying I know Tony's family upon learning more about Lynn's death was pretty upset that the investigation wasn't complete and there's a lot of people in Tony's family that believe that Tony would still be alive today if Harold had if the investigation into Harold's first wife's death was done more properly but since we're just spinning wheels on that point let's get back to our story here investigators looking at the 1995 case and the 2012 case were now convinced that Harold killed his first wife but they didn't have direct evidence he did it, just a whole lot of circumstantial evidence. So they're going to try to build an even stronger case by shifting their focus back to Tony, and they're going to learn of an incident that occurred in May of 2011. And this is they're actually going to learn from the family, because even after I explain everything that happened here, there was no police report done. This was just treated, again, as a accident with medical issues. So there was no investigation into this, and the family strongly felt there should have been and obviously remembered the incident and the, and so this is going to first come to light uh, when the family tells investigators this but they're going to tell the investigator the family's going to tell the story of an incident that occurred in may of 2011 and this is while working on a small mountain cabin harold had called tony out to look at something outside this is a like a two-level cabin with a walkout beneath and a deck above and when she walked out of the lower level she noticed something on the ground and bent down to pick it up and just as she did a blinding pain erupted in her upper back and neck and it turns out a large timber had fell off the deck directly above her and the weight and size of this timber was enough to put her in the emergency room with what was feared a spinal injury. Harold's inability to tell the same story happens here again as we're going to break down all of his different statements, but he can't keep a straight story about what happens. He claimed, mainly he claimed he was doing maintenance on the deck at 10 p.m., and this is in May, so in the dark, but he would tell doctors in the emergency room that the beam had just happened to fall off the deck at the time that Tony walked out, and then he would tell a friend of his that the beam slipped from his hand when he fell from a ladder that Tony was holding, and a nurse's note said that Harold told her Tony was under the deck holding a flashlight for him when the beam suddenly fell and struck her. So again, we're getting four different stories about how this beam fell and hit Tony, and none of them are even close enough to question whether or not he's just misremembering the order of the details. It's to the point that one story has a ladder, another story he's 
doing maintenance on the deck. Another story, you know, just the beam just happened to fall off the deck. He's not even around it. So he can't, again, tell the same story to two different people if his life depended on it. And friends of the Henthorns that came over to watch Haley that night so Harold could go to the ER would state that there was no other lumber on the deck that evening, meaning that would have been the only piece he was working on or working with when the accident happened. And again, investigators would find suspicious financial movements before the accident. Now, in this case, it was actually the removal of a life insurance policy that was suspicious. Prior to the accident, I think it was three months before, Harold had four $1.5 million policies, so totaling $6 million. But he just three months before the accident, he canceled one of them with a company that he had duplicate policies on. So he had two $1.5 million policies with one company and then single $1.5 million policies with two other companies. And some people might ask why, if he's going to kill someone, why would he give up a million payday as a part of it and I'll argue that he did that just for the optics of it so that when Tony died and he assumed he was Tony was going to die in this accident at the cabin he's going to be able to stand on the grounds of if I planned on killing her why would I get rid of 1.5 million dollars and the flip side of it is that the insurance company, the one that's going to have duplicate life insurance policies, they're going to have to pay out $3 million. They're going to look a lot closer and send their investigators a lot closer to a death where they're having to pay out two policies at $1.5 million apiece than they are for a single policy of $1.5 million. And it's the other reason he has three $1.5 million policies, not a single $4.5 million policy, is he's hoping to try to keep these payments from these insurance companies under the radar of their of of huge amounts of suspicion so basically right before this accident three months before he's setting it up so that he still has a really good payday at 4.5 million dollars but he's less likely if tony is to die to be looked at by the insurance companies now after the accident tony's mother's able to finally talk to tony alone and flat out tells Tony that she she suspects that Harold tried to kill her. By then, Harold was viewed by his in-laws as a man not to be trusted, and they believed he had no job, was possibly having multiple affairs, and was trying to kill their daughter. So this all happens in 2011. And again, Harold has separated Tony from her family. It's very rare that Tony ever gets a chance to talk to her family. But they're seeing things leading up to this incident in 2011, and obviously after this incident in 2011, that they're fearful that that Harold is going to kill Tony. And now, originally, they, like everybody else, thought Lynn's death was a tragic accident, and they felt bad for Harold for having lost his wife. And now they're all at the point thinking that Harold killed Lynn, and it's a, there's a good chance he's going to kill Tony. So... Harold has done himself no favors in terms of building people around him that believe that he's not capable of killing a wife of his for a life insurance payout. All of Tony's family believes it. Tony's friends believe it. There's basically, and from what we could tell and and the, the research said, 
you know, he doesn't have this job that he claims he has. He doesn't have the staff that he has. And at Tony's funeral, it was noted that no real fam, or sorry, no real friends or coworkers or anything like that of Harold showed up to this funeral. So Harold does have family, and I'm sure they were there at the funeral, but it's not like he's got all these friends that can give him glowing reviews or think highly of him. He's, he's basically alienated himself by his own behavior through from everybody that's close to him other than than tony and Haley, and those two really don't have a choice i mean tony does but she also doesn't she doesn't believe in leaving harold and doesn't want to do that to Haley. so the only two people that are truly close to him that would even potentially offer some type of positive review for him are his wife and daughter and he's gonna kill one of them and the other one's gonna eventually learn the truth of, of who he really is and unfortunately that the investigation is going to take two years and one of the reasons for this is you only get one chance as a prosecutor to bring somebody up on charges if you try that person and you fail to get a conviction against them double jeopardy does not allow you to to take another shot at them you can't just keep trying somebody for a crime until you get a jury that convicts them you get one shot and you're done so from the prosecution standpoint this case is always going to be circumstantial there's no direct evidence there's no eyewitnesses that saw the jeep fall on land there's no eyewitnesses that saw harold push tony or tony fall or whatever it may be so everything around the case is circumstantial and to put somebody away on a away for the rest of their life in prison the jury that's that's a lot of weight on the jury's mind and so if there's any doubt that can be introduced by the defense even and we haven't talked about this before but our court system is supposed to be based on beyond a reasonable doubt and at some point i feel personally that it switched to beyond all doubt and juries don't understand that and defense attorneys use that to their advantage by if they can just get any amount of doubt in somebody's mind even if it's unreasonable they can get either a hung jury or an acquittal off of it well there's just cases out there where there is going to be reasonable doubt there, there a case like this in some is it 100% even with all this evidence is there is it 100% that Harold killed his wife some people would say yes but others would say there is the possibility that this guy is the most unlucky guy in the world and both of his wives died by these tragic accidents and just everything that he's done around them just looks terrible but it's but he didn't actually kill them and that's you know what a defense lawyers going to use in terms of trying to put doubt in the jury's mind so what the prosecution has to do is they have to find every bit of circumstantial evidence they can to rule to to counter any doubt in that jury's mind so that's why it took two years because they had to go and take a closer look at the at lynn's death in 1995 they had to take a closer look at the attempt on tony's life in 2011 and then eventually they're actually going to also look at the grace rochelle uh, life insurance stuff that we talked about at the end of part one and they're going to 
say, you know, here's the evidence. Not only has he killed two wives now in similar fashions with unwitnessed accidents in remote locations, he's, you know, got a third one that he's already maneuvering life insurance policies on. And so after two years, the, the, prosecuting attorneys are going to look at it and say we think we have enough here to to bring it to bring this to trial so harold's going to be arrested in november of 2014 and he's going to be charged with the first degree murder of tony henthorne and there's going to be a lot of people that question why with all the stuff that we talked about in the 1995 investigation when that was redone the second time why charges weren't brought against him for lynn's case and i'm sure prosecutors wanted to bring charges but what they found is that if the judge would allow the investigation in the 1995 trial or 1995 investigation into the trial it would be like Harold's on trial for both murders if that makes sense the jury gets to hear all of the evidence of from both quote unquote accidents and then decide if either or but in this case both murders or or accidents were in fact murder they get to decide on both so as much as a lot of people wanted him to see a separate charge for lynn's case i think investigators wisely decided that it would just be better to present both cases under tony's charge and then hope that the jury saw all the patterns and similarities and decide that if you find him guilty of Tony's murder, you're finding him guilty of Lynn's at the same time. So the trial would begin in September of 2015. There would be no plea deal, and Harold's defense team would rely on the fact there's no direct evidence linking him to the case and is purely purely circumstantial. The defense would actually take a truly defensive stance by using the strategy of not having to prove anything but trying to destroy any proof presented by the prosecution. It's one of those rare cases because the prosecution actually has the burden to change the jury's mind. Jury, you know, The whole thing is you're innocent until you're proven guilty. And so the, the burden of proof is on the prosecution to convince the jury that the a crime was committed and that there's enough evidence to support that the person on trial committed that crime, the defense doesn't have to prove that he didn't commit the crime. They just have to prove that, or they just have to shelter from the storm that the defense, that the prosecution is going to bring in terms of evidence. So they can try to object to everything they can try to object to and try to basically just it's more like a prevent defense and not go on the offense. And in the, really in this case, I don't know how much offense they would have had to go on anyway. And ultimately they're not even going to call a single witness and Harold himself isn't going to take the stand. So there's actually going to be nobody speaking on Harold's behalf. And that I did find a little strange that they couldn't even find a character witness to say that, you know, Harold loved Lynn, Harold loved Tony, and he would never harm them or never do anything to hurt them. And ultimately, I think that says more than than anything else in terms of the defense can't even find that. And this is, this is the type of person the jury's going to see in the courtroom there, somebody not even willing to 
step forward and speak on his behalf. So the defense is going to take this taking the punches defensive strategy and let the prosecution put the case out there and hope that it's enough without direct evidence to get an acquittal. However, the jury is going to hear all the evidence, and this was kind of a summary of some of the main points that jurors afterwards, when uh, when questioned, would say were kind of major points in the case. So, first off, the 911 call where Harold claimed to be doing CPR, and we talked about the the condition of the body. The coroner didn't believe CPR was done. The dispatcher would also testify that she'd given CPR instructions roughly 240 times prior to Harold's 911 call, and this was the only time in 240 times that she felt the person wasn't actually giving CPR. And this is because when you give CPR, I mean, I mentioned it in part one, you're compressing that person's rib cage and basically pushing down everything in their upper torso to, to put pressure on the heart, to, to make that blood from the heart get out into the rest of the body and it is an exhausting endeavor to do so and so when you see in movies like people are just pushing an eighth of an inch down for five minutes or whatever it may be no you're you're again pushing quite hard for quite long and if you don't do it quite right where you're directly your shoulders are directly over the point that you're applying pressure and letting some of the weight of your upper body assist you in the cpr people who try to do it with all arms or do it at an angle they will tire out very quickly and even even if you're doing it right you're going to tire out and run out of breath pretty quickly and the, the cpr dispatch or the dispatcher that was giving the cpr instructions basically said he didn't sound out of breath he didn't sound like anybody else that i've ever given cpr instructions he claimed he was doing everything during that four minute phone call, but he was, you know, at the end of the four minute phone call, he sounded the same like he did in the beginning. And so, so the jury again is going to hear this and that's pretty impactful that here's this quote unquote grieving husband claiming to do CPR on his, on his wife that he loves. And the dispatcher saying he wasn't giving CPR coroner saying she doesn't look like she got CPR. Uh, then there was the map, which Harold tried to tell a friend that he made the map for him, and it had nothing to do with Tony's death. And this, I think, was at Tony's funeral himself. He came up to this friend, family friend or friend of his and said, hey, man, they found this map that I was making for you from a trip to the park. And the friend just was kind of taken aback, like, I never asked for a map. I, I've never mentioned that park before. So, again, his, his attempt to create a lie around this map, you know, the jury's going to hear this and say not only does he make this map that's, that's pretty damning evidence, he's afterwards trying to shift the reason for the map to something that's completely unreasonable. Uh, the jury also heard about the nine trips Harold made to the lo location, believed to be scouting trips for just the right spot to push Tony. They heard about the spot by the white sheet that only existed before the accident and not the day of the accident. Also presented in the trial is the fact that when Tony was found, she was missing the diamond from her wedding ring. Her band was on her finger, but this large, very large diamond that was worth around $30,000, according to Harold, was missing. So some people could have thought during the fall, you know, it, it hit on a rock at the right angle and it popped 
the diamond free from its fitting but it was a pretty i mean obviously this was a very remote area and nothing had really been disturbed and so the investigators spent a long time looking for this diamond and they when they couldn't find it they kept going after harold basically saying they believe he took the diamond and there's no other reason the diamond wouldn't be out there at the site and after they really began to pressure him it was about eight months after they they were pressuring him an investigator that was back out at the site kind of i don't know if they looked taking measurements or taking another look at the site or whatever found the diamond it was just sitting like right out in the open as they walked up and they could just see it from several feet away and investigators that were there before that that were looking for this diamond knew for a fact that that diamond wasn't in that spot when they were looking earlier so they believe that harold returned to the site deposited the diamond because he was under such pressure from the fbi to produce the diamond believe them believing rightfully so that he took the time to remove the diamond from the fitting hoping that nobody would notice that that her that the diamond was missing from her ring or that they would assume that it just fell off and nobody would look for it so that was presented to the to the jury and then on the final attack on harold the prosecution unleashed the findings from the second look at lynn's death which included all the misleading statements and the contradicting evidence that was presented as well as the shoe print on the spot needed to kick to knock the jeep off the jack so again lynn's case and the similarities between his inability to provide a single truthful statement to all parties that ask him about what happened, the inconsistencies with the events, the they also brought up the life insurance policies, his inability to tell the truth when it came to even telling investigators how much he was gonna get in life insurance policies from these murders, because again, he didn't want in this case especially them to know that he was going to get 4.5 million dollars for tony's death because he knew that they would look even harder at this because that's an even greater motive so and then as i mentioned the defense on the other hand calls no witnesses and harold uh, pled the fifth so he doesn't have to take the stand and now go to the jury to decide whether it's this accident or cold-blooded murder it took the jury only 10 hours which is short for a case with no direct physical evidence, and they return with a verdict of guilty of first-degree murder. And some people look at it and say, 10 hours, I mean, that must have taken a while to convince people. Well, first off, they're going to put somebody away for life, so they're not going to go back there and 20 minutes later come back and say, yeah, he's guilty. Especially in a case where there's no direct evidence. If there was, you know, if this either these cases involved a gun and the DNA from the from the suspect is found on that gun later at some other time those are the cases that oftentimes juries will deliberate and return faster because there's direct evidence between the killer the weapon used to kill the person Um, and in this case again you're deciding whether all of these facts add up to harold killed tony or whether could there be a chance that this was just another tragic accident claiming the life of another one of Harold's wives. So the jury's just going to take their time, make sure they get it right, and they're going to return with that unanimous decision that he's guilty of first-degree murder. Harold and his lawyers would immediately appeal the conviction, mainly on the grounds that the information presented in regards to Lynn's death was inadmissible and biased the jury's decision. 
This would go before a court of appeals in 2017, and they would find that Harold's behavior to include his actions during and after the death of his first wife and his first attempt to kill Tony were all valid points of evidence, and his appeal was denied. So this is just going to be one of those things where judges have to make so many decisions based on motions filed. So every, both the defense and the prosecution before the trial are going to issue motions and they want to the defense often wants to suppress evidence wants to keep certain parts out of the trial they may want to try to move the trial to a different location claiming that that would get their client a more fair trial so there's there's a whole bunch of things and that judge before the case begins and the big one now is whether or not they're going to allow cameras in the courtrooms whether it, whether this is going to be a televised trial or whether it's going to be released via transcripts and stuff. So the judge has to make all these decisions decisions before a trial. And the hope there, A, for the defense is that they can get certain evidence suppressed so the jury can't hear about the person's past. And the prosecution wants to fight to get in as much evidence as they can in order to make their case easier to prove. And when it's all said and done... Sometimes when there's an acquittal, you know, the prosecution also has the chance to appeal to say the judge made some ruling that affected our ability to prosecute this case. So they want to do a, a retrial or whatever it may be. Whereas in the cases of convictions, the defense is often going to appeal that any decision made by the judge prior to the trial caused an unfair outcome for the jury and they want another trial so that's going to happen in 2017 and the appeals court of appeals is going to decide no based on all of the information and evidence presented in both investigations the 1995 case needed to be used as evidence and it was fine to bring it in and they're going to deny his appeal and then they're going to bring this to the supreme court which is that next step court of appeals denies it lawyers can bring it to the supreme court which they did in 2018, but the Supreme Court can decide which cases they take. And in 2018, they decide not to take Harold Henthorne's case. And that ended that line of appeal for Harold, but he wasn't done yet. In 2022, he again appealed his conviction, this time on grounds of inadequate counsel, claiming that his lawyer provided no defense for him after billing him and his family for over a million dollars in legal fees. And this appeal was also rejected and hopefully marks the end of the sad saga so again he's going to this is the age old it doesn't matter they, they paid a million dollars for a defense attorney and they're going to claim inadequate counsel they claim this is a claim a lot of times with public defenders where the they, they feel like the public defender who in more cases or more often is hit with so many cases that they it is hard for them to provide adequate counsel but it's, it's laughable when somebody makes the decision to hire an attorney, has them all the way through their pre-trial and trial, and then after they get convicted, they turn around and say, uh, my, my lawyer wasn't good enough, that's why. So again, this appeal is going to be rejected, and as of right now, as of 2023, there's no other appeals out there right now, and I believe likely we, there's not going to be much left for him to appeal. And so for now, and hopefully forever, Harold Henthorne is behind bars where he belongs. Now, Haley was originally given to the custody of some of Harold's relatives, but Tony's family has fought hard to legally adopt her. And there was kind of an interesting story here. So Todd is Tony's brother, 
and he's a cardiologist and there was actually a story in here and I didn't want to put it in during the whole thing because it really didn't fit in terms of of part of the investigation of the crimes but there was a point at one time that Harold was hanging out with with Todd and his wife and Tony and Harold started experiencing some some strange symptoms it wasn't feeling quite right and Todd being a cardiologist thought Harold was having a heart attack and he actually had gotten a new machine at the time it was this was uh, some groundbreaking technology and they put Harold on this machine and found that he had almost complete blockage of one of his arteries in his heart which is what causes most heart attacks so they were able to get in there and prevent him from having what likely could have been a fatal heart attack and that's something that Todd would have to live with the rest of his life and he said as a doctor it'd be hard for him to go back knowing what he knows now and change what he did because he's a doctor because he wants to help people but he also knows that you know given the chance if he hadn't offered help to to Harold there's a good chance Harold would have died from the resulting heart attack and then would not have been around to kill Tony so he'd still have his sister so one of those you know paradoxical moral dilemmas there that that Todd has to deal with but but it's Todd and his wife that are trying to adopt Haley and hoping that that, that will work out for them it w- they would also say and again I didn't want to put this in part of the criminal investigation but for those two years after Tony's death before Harold was arrested Haley of course was with her father because there was no criminal charges and no outright evidence that he was abusing her that she wasn't safe with him even though I'm sure Tony's family felt that he was or that she wasn't safe with Harold but uh, their family and friends would notice that Haley would say things like mommy was clumsy and they believe wholeheartedly and I do too that Harold was coaching her every chance that she got to make mention to people that Tony's death was purely Tony's fault that that I should say that her mother's death was clearly her mother's fault so he spent those two years kind of again continuing to make keep her as his puppet and mold her into this little puppet that she could control including telling her what to think in regards to her mother's death but with her father behind bars and a man that now she no longer considers even her father Haley has a chance to be the amazing woman her mother was before that fateful day in 2012 so that's the story of the male black widow probably at some point cover the the original black widow case because that one's pretty interesting as well i just thought again when i first saw i believe i saw this on a either 48 hours episode or something along those lines it was just with all the twists and turns and all of his lies i thought it would be a good case to cover at some point and then when i really got into the weeds of it i didn't realize how deep his deception and his all of his stuff actually went so i was glad i was able to make it a two-part episode cover all of the stuff that was going on with with this case Uh, That's it for today. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned for future episodes and feel free to write me at truebluecrimeproductions at gmail.com. You can also find me at truebluecrimeproductions on Facebook and support me via Patreon at truebluecrimeproductions. Thanks everyone for listening. Have a great day. Talk to you later. Goodbye.